From WEB News, you're listening to The Outlet, where campus meets community. I'm Liam Niemeyer. And I'm MC Tilton. Each week on The Outlet, we bring you stories from the Athens and Ohio University communities. This week, we'll look into the threat E. coli has on the food industry in the wake of food poisonings at the popular fast food eatery Chipotle Mexican Grill. We'll dive into the do-it-yourself music community and what makes it unique in Athens. But first, Ohio University recently became the first college in the United States to ban the storage and use of hoverboards, a transportation trend of recent months, from all campus buildings. We'll look at the reasoning behind the ban and other hoverboard bans around the nation while also exploring the impact it has on local hoverboard owners. Um, you know, our biggest concern is, is fire and explosion. The next biggest concern is anybody that's maybe not familiar with them using them as far as falling off of them, hitting their head, or, or mm-hmm. something like that. I mean, we would want to make sure that people are protecting themselves. Those stories and more are coming up on The Outlet. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Outlet. The Back to the Future movies envisioned us zooming around on hoverboards in 2015, but the real-life version of the hoverboard is firmly planted with two wheels on the ground. That is, unless you happen to fall off one. And as WEB's Delaney Phillips explains, hoverboard fails along with problems with the device itself, are drawing the attention of consumer safety officials. Ohio University's campus won't look like a scene from the Back to the Future movies anytime soon. The university is one of the first in the country to ban the use and storage of the newest gadget craze to sweep the nation, hoverboards. Hoverboards are like segways without the handle that the user must shift weight on to keep balanced, clearly lacking an actual hover button. 30 other universities and three major airlines now prohibit hoverboards after the Consumer Product Safety Commission got reports of more than 25 injuries when their lithium battery exploded. They've got some real issues that they really need to, to address before we can feel comfortable letting, those, letting them be around. That's Jeff Campbell, Ohio University's Interim Associate Vice President of Risk Management and Safety Department. He says his main focus is to take any needed precautions in ensuring the safety of all students on campus. Um, you know, our biggest concern is, is fire and explosion. Next biggest concern is anybody that's maybe not familiar with them using them as far as falling off of them, hitting their head, or, or mm-hmm. something like that. I mean, we would want to make sure that people are protecting themselves. The ban encompasses all Ohio University buildings, including classrooms and residence halls. It comes at the wrong time for freshman Caleb Wharton, who got one for Christmas. I was not very happy to see that it was banned two days before I came back, so I decided that I had to send it back because there's no purpose of having it. The safety concerns means RAs like Patrick Evans are on the lookout for wannabe Marty McFly's. My belief is that um, that currently falls under um, environmental health and safety. I think it's a safety concern um, because there's been so many accidents that have happened with uh, hoverboards. Um, so I know the first thing I would do is ask the resident to um, get off of the board uh, for their safety and making sure that um, they're as safe as possible. Um, and then uh, we do have to confiscate the item, um, from my belief. Um, we confiscate the item, um, and then um, that would be followed up by my supervisor. But students like Wharton shouldn't give up all hope of one day zipping around campus on his hoverboard. But yeah, we would, we would be more than happy to reconsider it based on uh, you know what's going on with the, with the uh, CPSC. Until then, students will have to settle for an old-fashioned way to get from place to place, walking. For The Outlet, I'm Delaney Phillips. Non-males, meaning females and all other non-male identifiers, are starting to be known within the local punk do-it-yourself music community as the pillars of the scene. 
Megan Fair will be exploring the unique nature of the Athens do-it-yourself community throughout the semester. Today, we start with the non-male folks who run most of the shows. Forty bodies crowd into a living room, all chatting excitedly. A tall young woman walks around the room with a cardboard box, asking people for donations. The people smashed into this cozy home, nicknamed Luigi's Thunderdome, are here to see live music. The tall young woman is asking for donations for the touring bands. They've traveled several hours to perform in an unsuspecting home in Athens, Ohio. This is what DIY music looks like. DIY music, or do-it-yourself music as it stands for, is a certain subset of community of musicians and artists who don't want to rely on the mainstream way of distributing music. The closest you can get to a DIY community without sort of having an in is probably seeing bands perform at the Smiling Skull Saloon in Athens. People who are sick of rock star complexes and a limited access to the music industry decided that DIY, this community, was the best way to go about fixing that problem. DIY has been around since the 80s, uh, gave birth to grunge essentially in the 90s, and the thing is, it still exists today. In more cities than you expect, small towns, little villages, entire cities have DIY communities. They exist underneath of an overlaying, overarching entertainment community. Here's what separates DIY from what we usually expect of music entertainment. Seeing T-Pain at Mamad, not DIY. Watching Honey, a band from Pittsburgh, perform in a living room, that's DIY music. This is what live music sounds like in a living room. think that a community that exists outside of society's norms and general values about entertainment would probably subvert gender norms as well. However, historically, with the exception of the Riot Girl movement in the 90s, there really has not been anything but men leading the DIY communities around the nation. Obviously, there are exceptions to this, but take for example Athens. In 2012, the Athens DIY community was a scene largely curated by men, the bands that were performing were almost entirely composed of men, and the people going to shows, while there were non-men going to shows, were mostly guys. Throughout this audio story, I'm going to refer to anyone who doesn't identify as a male as non-man. The reason I am doing this is because not everyone identifies as female. Certain people identify as non-binary, and if you don't know what that is, non-binary is an identity that rejects the gender binary. They're neither male nor female. This has nothing to do with biological sex. This has nothing to do with sex assigned at birth. This is gender identity, which is wholly decided by your mental feeling. Athens in 2016 is an example of what happens when DIY communities subvert norms. Pillars of the scene, Julia Leiby and Bailey Kretz, as well as prominent musicians Madeline Turney and Wishbone, are non-men. This song is High and Lonesome by Wishbone. 
name is Julia Livey. I'm a photojournalism major and a media minor. I always wanted to be in a band. Um, you know, just going to so many shows, you sort of like, you're always on the other side of it. You're always watching. You're not like up there in front of everyone. And like, um, in the beginning, I was like, not really, like, I didn't really want to do it. But then like, basically, I just had like, I decided to stay in Athens over spring break. So I had, and like, all my roommates were gone had an acoustic guitar and I was like just gonna do girls rock camp and like see what happens here's Libby performing solo as Julian it's only fitting that the first band Libby ever booked was Frankie Cosmos the brainchild of Greta Klein an act led by a woman one day I was like looking at Frankie Cosmos Facebook and I saw they needed a show in Athens. I literally just Facebook messaged them and I was like, hey, you should play here. And then I set up the show and that was the first show I ever booked. If you're like, if you're like in a scene where pretty much everything is run by men, it just, it can be kind of scary and intimidating to be like, to like, you know, like message people and be like, hey, I want to like do this show. Like, and you're kind of afraid they'll see you as like, oh, this, like, little girl who, like, doesn't know what she's doing or something because you sort of don't know what you're doing and you're a new person, but, like, you don't know if they're going to be open to you doing these kind of things. Like, you don't know if they'll be friendly. Um, what has improved is definitely non-men. Representation, women running shit, doing shit, booking shows, playing shows. I'm Bailey Kretz, and I'm an integrated media major. Kretz is promotions director of ACRN Media and an active show promoter in the DIY scene. So I'm the promotional director at ACRN, and basically that means I need to organize events or different activities or things like that to raise awareness for the radio station. Uh, usually that's through doing shows um, or music festivals or any kind of like music-related conference, anything like that. Shane Riley, former promotion instructor for ACRN Media, had set a decent standard for gender diversity in lineup. Kretz, however, plans to consciously take that diversity a step further. If, if I have more time to prepare for a show, I'll definitely make efforts to like diversify the lineup. Um, and especially with Lobster Fest, which I'm booking, I'm really excited about uh, the diversity of genders and races and just all musical types and just everything. Kretz commented on the novelty of Athens' DIY scene. I think it's really awesome and probably not common to have this many non-males in the scene. Um, I know when I first got here, it was predominantly male. I don't think there were actually any non-males doing anything. So it that's been really exciting to see, and I, I like that maybe I can consider myself part of that shift. Um, and you see freshmen coming in now, and they realize that they can be a part of that, and it doesn't matter what their gender is. Libby and Kretz are going to graduate this spring. This leaves two large pairs of shoes to fill. Now that more non-men are coming to shows and feel safe getting involved, Kretz and Libby hope that non-men involvement in the scene continues to grow. For The Outlet, this is Megan Fair. Food safety is back in the news after dozens of people have been sickened by E. coli and neurovirus. WEB's Abby Grise spoke with students about the bacteria affecting a popular restaurant chain in Athens. It's the dinnertime rush at Boyd Hall, and first-year student Lennon Rowland is at a table with two of his friends enjoying a meal. 
Roland says he normally doesn't worry about whether the food he's eating is unsafe, but a recent string of food poisoning, largely linked to the popular restaurant chain Chipotle, has him thinking twice about eating at a place that's a favorite for Ohio University students. Because it's such a big name, they talk about、um, getting their food from like good sources, like all of it's like farm raised. So that surprised me a lot, since they take so much pride in their food. Last October, 46 people in Washington and Oregon were infected with a strain of E. coli. Then, in November and December, several more people across the country contracted the bacterial infection, bringing the total number of cases up to 52. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, 46 out of the 52 ill people they interviewed had eaten at Chipotle the week before their symptoms appeared. In early December, 120 Boston College students who ate at a single Chipotle became infected with norovirus. The CDC says it is still trying to figure out what menu item is behind the outbreaks, and that can be like searching for a needle in a haystack. Thomas Stevenson, an adjunct instructor in OU's College of Education and Human Services, who also has two decades of hospitality experience, says the source of contamination can happen anywhere in a restaurant's food supply chain. It takes one person not washing their hands. It takes one person、uh, not wiping down their station appropriately. It takes one person、um, who wasn't trained properly by a supervisor to、uh, break the rules and cause a systematic. A breakdown that can happen three steps away from before it ever gets to Chipotle's door. In response to the outbreaks, Chipotle restaurants across the country have implemented new food safety programs, sampling and testing to prevent contaminants, and new sanitation procedures, according to the company's website. The company is also taking the additional step of closing until 3 p.m. on February 8th to quote thank our employees for their hard work through this difficult time. Discuss some of the food safety changes we are implementing and answer questions from employees. But that hasn't eased sophomore Patricia Kalella's mind. Well, I don't eat out at school like that as much as try to like save money. So at home, I probably didn't go like all break when I usually would go like once a week or so. And that's the biggest obstacle for restaurants battling food safety issues: the perception of a problem. For the outlet, I'm Abby Grise. That's it for our show this week. Thanks for joining us. The outlet is produced and hosted each week by me, Liam Nimar, and my co-host MC Tilton. We are edited by Atish Baidia, Susan Tebbin, and Allison Hunter. Adam Rich is our technical assistant. Our theme music is performed by Ryan Gabos. Subscribe to the outlet on iTunes or find us online at woub.org. We'll be back next week with more stories from the Athens and Ohio University communities. Thanks for listening.